0: The World Changing Women podcast is brought to you by Conscious Company Media, building a community of leaders who are doing business better. Learn more about Conscious Company magazine, events, and membership at ConsciousCompanyMedia.com. I'm Megan French Dunbar, co-founder and CEO of Conscious Company Media, and welcome to World Changing Women. Each week, we interview some of the most badass female founders in the world to get their insights on how they've built game-changing companies that actually have a positive impact on the world. Our hope here is to inspire and help people of all backgrounds who feel like starting a business or chasing their dream is out of their reach to reconsider. We'll hear the good, the bad, and sometimes even the ugly of what it takes to start and build something incredible. And we hope that every episode will leave you inspired, hopeful, and with practical tips that will help you along your journey. Welcome to World Changing Women.
1: There's a new reason to give up everything, right? There's a new challenge in the beginning. There's a new, uh, there's uncharted territory. And then if you're taking on an issue where people are gonna, on top of that, have really angry negative reactions to what you're doing, you better be so gung-ho, full-on committed to your mission that that stuff just motivates you further.
0: In 2012, Mika Hollander was sitting by the pool during the summer of her MBA program when someone handed her a business proposal for a sustainable condom company. And it turns out that someone was her own father, Jeffrey Hollander, who founded the company Seventh Generation. Convinced at the time that she was far more interested in becoming an intrapreneur and working at a large corporation, Mika didn't exactly jump at the opportunity. But over the next six months, she began to realize that sustainable condoms and feminine care were actually something that she really cared about. So she took the leap and co-founded Sustain with her own father. In this episode, we'll hear about what advice she has for starting a company with a family member, how she's built a company in such a taboo product category, and how she's kept it all together through the ups and downs of building her business.
1: Sustain wasn't my original idea. It it came out of an idea that my dad had actually almost 20 years ago. Um, He was at the time um, the founder and CEO of a company called seventh generation, which is the nation's sort of largest brand of natural household cleaning, personal care, baby products. And so in a lot of ways, sustain is, not, is sort of like the apple not falling so far from the tree um, because I grew up completely engaged in and sort of like surrounded by natural products. Um, but right before my dad and I, you know, your classic condom entrepreneur co founder, <laughs> decided to start this company together, I was in business school. Um, at NYU, and I had just spent the summer in between my first and second year working on the sustainability team at Johnson & Johnson. Um, Interestingly, and not for any real reason at the time, another sort of medical device company, uh, but really feeling like at that time I was really going to make my mark and and, and sort of approach the world of sustainable. Responsible business from the perspective of going inside of a large multinational corporation and, you know, getting them to change their ways, um, which which didn't exactly happen as I had planned. <laughs> I,
0: I had the same aspiration when I did my MBA. I was going to be an entrepreneur and save the world that way, and then ended up founding my own company, and here we are. Um, So you're at NYU, you're working at Johnson & Johnson. Your dad has had this idea. Has he shared this idea with you yet?
1: No. So my dad, you know, my dad and I have been close sort of forever. But right as I was actually applying to business school, um, he got fired from Seventh Generation. And, you know, after almost 30 years. And that was a really traumatic experience for him and for our family. Um, And it was also really interesting because my whole sort of thesis of going to business school was to go work at 7th Generation afterwards, um, specifically in their tampon, you know, division. And... When he, you know, ended up leaving, we we sort of found each other at this really similar, interesting, and very different point in our lives um, trying to figure out what we were going to do. And the, the idea for Sustain, which initially started as a idea called Rainforest Rubbers, <laughs> didn't end up making it through uh, the naming project. That was not something, you know, it wasn't like, oh, every you know, every year my dad sat down and talked about how he wished he could make condoms. I had never heard of this idea before. He was trying to figure out, you know, almost six years ago, what the hell am I going to do with my life? What do I enjoy doing? Um, Which ended up being start another business. And I was at a similar crossroads of, you know, thought I was going to go work at seventh generation that didn't pan out, then thought I was going to go work at a huge sort of consumer products company, didn't find that to be super interesting. Um, And so we're both just in the summer, it was the summer in between my two years of business school that he handed me what was the initial business plan for um, Sustain.
0: And in what year was this?
1: That business plan crossed my pool chair. (laughs) That was the summer of 2012.
0: 2012. And so, I, I every relationship between a father and daughter is different, but I cannot imagine my father handing me a business plan that had to do with sustainable condoms. Uh, that is like an area that my dad and I definitely don't talk about. So I'm curious for you, how, like, how was this received? You're sitting in a pool chair, you get a business plan from your dad about creating a condom company. Like, what what's going through your mind when you're reading this business plan?
1: Well, it's kind of funny because. Not at all did it cross my mind that this would be weird. (laughs) (laughs) That was just my mind immediately went to sort of dimensionalizing the opportunity. Um, We sort of skipped through, oh, this would be so strange. And it's funny because what we experienced as we ended up starting the business together was that sort of, Societal implication of you know a family condom business is fucking weird, and (laughs) Um, but we didn't we didn't think about that at first. I mean, I think back on those early conversations, and it's not it's not giggling or you know, it was really about the opportunity and why condoms and why sustainable condoms. And then for me, which ended up being sort of like the second layer of the business, it was you know, where, where's really the big opportunity here and what am I really passionate about within this idea? Um, which ended up really becoming this idea of focusing the business on the female consumer. Um, because she's been, you know, neglected from this category since the category was invented. Um, but it wasn't a weird, you know, all the funny moments, And there have been some have usually been because someone else has sort of probed at what we're doing and and how awkward it is that we're related.
0: (laughs) So for listeners who aren't familiar with the brand, you, you know, you're saying sustainable condom company, what was kind of the problem that you were looking to solve with that initial business plan?
1: So Sustain really, you know, there were two really critical ideas in terms of why we were excited about this business and why we thought it was so important. On the one hand, coming out of my entire life being sort of surrounded by the natural products industry and watching how, you know, it went from category to category and it continued to expand cleaning products. Skincare, food, clothing, you know, it just, it continued to proliferate. Um, But what was interesting about condoms and just sexual wellness products in general is, you know, these are things going inside of one of the most intimate, most absorbed parts of your body. So from my perspective, it was kind of strange and ironic that we're focused on cleaning products and dishwashing liquid But nobody's talking about tampons. Nobody's talking about condoms. Nobody's talking about lubricant. And so that was really one piece of what I was really excited about. I was like, wow, let's sort of like flip this whole thing on its head and let's tell women, let's ask women to think about what they're putting inside their vagina. And the reality is most women had no idea. There's a lot of reasons for that. And then the second thing was... As I was looking at um, the category, I had actually worked at a company prior to going to business school that was all sort of about like finding the white space within categories. And so I was looking at the condom competitive set. I was looking at the aisle. I was looking at the ingredients. I was looking at everything to do with the category. And I learned that 40% of condoms are actually purchased by women. And I thought that was really interesting. Um, and And I was honestly pretty surprised by that. Because when you look at the brands that have been around forever, there's nothing appealing, at least to me as a consumer, about them, let alone how they're making their products, how they're marketing them, et cetera, et cetera. At the time of starting Sustain, there was this kind of crazy paradigm of, you know, a woman who carries condoms and buys condoms as a slut, and a guy who does the same as a hero. And so Sustain really became about shifting and changing that paradigm and creating a world where female sexuality was celebrated, not stigmatized, um, and really ultimately changing condom culture. And as part of that mission, you know, if you're going to celebrate female sexuality, you need to have products that are serving her well. Um, and we really didn't believe the products on the market at that time were, um, doing that.
0: Love it. So you're in a, in a pool lounger in summer of 2012, uh, and this business plan comes across your lounge chair. Um, what, what actually made you decide to go for this idea, and how long did that take?
1: It took time, and it, and it wasn't, you know, what, what ended up happening was I went sort of down the path of getting more involved and engaged in developing the business plan. And I got, you know, more interested in the category. I started looking into, you know, the statistics around women's sexual and reproductive health, which had always been something I'd been sort of interested in peripherally. Um, And I just kind of, you know, as the next few months went on, I got fired up about the business And it started out as not an official, oh, I'm going to join in in starting this company. I just, you know, I was interested. We were talking it through. My dad was talking to investors um, and I was interested in getting some of that feedback. And then I actually at the time was still considering, you know, working at Unilever. I ended up basically getting a job offer from Unilever to work on the sustainability team. And that's when I had to make a decision. Um, so it was probably about five or six months after seeing the initial business plan that I came to this crossroads of, all right, you know, I'm enjoying, I'm enjoying participating in developing this idea, but, you know, I I had sort of my plan at that time was still to go work at a bigger company. Um, and so I had to make a decision and then we probably spent about another month, Just trying to figure out what to do. And it wasn't, it wasn't about my interest. It was actually really focused on what it would be like to be a father-daughter founding team. My mom was also involved at that time. She's still involved. Um, and and I really wanted to take time to think about how that would impact our family, our, our relationships, our dynamic. I spent about a month, maybe even a month and a half, talking to other people and peers that had gone into family businesses. And what was interesting was I couldn't find anybody who had founded something with a parent. I found people who had joined family businesses that were established. I found siblings who had started something together. Um, but I couldn't find this exact, you know, paradigm. And so I basically took a leap of faith and sort of said, all let right, right, let's, let's try and figure this out. Um let's let's start this business together. and so probably all in about six months from when I saw that initial business plan.
0: And I, I feel like you kind of just got at this, but what was the actual why? Why did you turn down the Unilever job and decide that this was the good decision to do?
1: God, it's it was so you know it was funny. it was so many conversations with friends. Um, people I trusted, advisors. Uh, It was like part of it was the opportunity. I, I really believed in what we were going to create with Sustain and how much we were going to be able to disrupt this category. And the other part was, you know, while it's putting my relationship with my dad specifically in sort of a unknown territory he's like one of the smartest people definitely the most successful person I know closely Um, why wouldn't I take this opportunity to start something with him and learn all that I can because that was always my goal in in a way right I was going to go back and work for him at seventh generation I was like a gung-ho you know I, I worked at seventh generation every summer I drove around like a Prius decorated with tampons when they launched tampons. Like <laughs> I was like, you know, I was the oldest and seventh generation. and I were basically born the same year. And so that took my life was very much sort of around this idea that I would go and work with my dad because I thought he was so awesome. And I thought he was so smart and I thought he was such a visionary. So then, it, you know, that was a big piece of the decision as well why, why wouldn't I still pursue that? Why wouldn't I want to learn as much as I can from him?
0: And I mean, as, as many people know, the co-founder relationship is a sacred one. Um, I'm curious, since you didn't have any real examples to follow, were there ground rules you guys put in at the beginning? Did he have some wisdom to be able to share with you? I mean, how did you guys navigate co-founding a business and were there any kind of rules that you guys put around this new relationship that you were creating?
1: Uh, yeah. I mean, the first the first year, I would say the first two years, because the first year was, you know, we didn't launch until the summer of 2014. We had a lot of upfront development work to do because we were developing a new medical device, um, which was the condoms. The first two years were really tough in terms of our relationship. It was an immediate sort of strain on like what we knew we knew that he was a parent and I was a child that he was experienced and I was inexperienced that he'd been successful and I hadn't yet and so there were all of these tensions and what happened for me was I got I felt insecure and so I actually was pretty like reactive and defensive in the first year of doing this together because I felt like I needed to I needed to know what I was talking about. I needed to have the answers. Um and that's really challenging. And so we didn't have other than somebody saying to me, only call him Jeffrey in business meetings and at the office because everyone else will otherwise be very uncomfortable. (laughs) We didn't have a lot of sort of developed the rules and the things like you know speaking to um a family business therapist as we went along uh, we didn't start with them and we figured it out and it took a few years to really get the relationship into sort of a more humming place and you know but every year we would be it would, it would face a new challenge. I would feel more secure. I would be taking more control. I would be taking over more responsibilities. I mean, to the point at which now, obviously he's not even involved in the day to day. There's been so many evolution points. Um, and, and I would really say, you know, honestly it was, it was really challenging. Um, and it was definitely a really great experience, but I think it was also, you know, a good lesson for people who are getting into business with family. It's not, it's not going to be easy. And you do have that really amazing comfort of like endless trust. Um, Right. I always, I didn't think he was going to like try and screw me over. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) We're on the same team and we wanted, you know, to support each other endlessly, but that doesn't make it, that doesn't mean there's no, you know, it's free of problems.
0: For for anyone who's kind of about to embark on the journey and, and heading into it in a family dynamic with a co-founder or co-founders, what advice would you have?
1: I mean, I think with family, you really need to sort of sit down and, and really all make a decision, which we did at one point, which was, you know, our family comes first. If there's a point at which it's not working. You know, we would rather have somebody exit the day-to-day of the business than to just drag our entire family through, you know, whatever we were going through. Um, And it's sort of like a marriage. (laughs) You need to sort of set up your expectations in advance and they're going to change, right? They're going to, they're going to change. You might be interested in being more involved or running marketing. And then maybe a few years later, the other founders won't, you know, like, but dividing up, your responsibilities, clarifying, you know, do you want to do this for five years? Do you want to do this for 10 years? Do you want to do this for one? You know, like all the things that you do or I did when I was getting married, it's similar principles of defining what's your goal, what's your objective, you know, how how much do you want to work? Do you want to work seven days a week? Do you want to work five? Like there's all these expectations that I think a lot of co-founders don't talk about in advance. And I've seen this many times where you get six, 12, 18 months, 24 months in, and people get irritated because it's sort of like their expectations of the other person or what they, you know, I'm putting in more time than you, I'm focused on this and you're not, um, you just have this misalignment and it can be really challenging for the business.
0: All right. So I'm going to kind of take us back to this timeline. So summer of 2012, six or seven months into it, you decide you're going to take the leap and co-found this new company with your dad. You mentioned that there was a lot of kind of R&D at the beginning, but like, what were some of the very, very first steps that you guys took once you decided to actually go for it? Was it like coming up with the name? Was it getting a domain name? Like, what were the like tangible first steps of starting the company?
1: So one of the first steps for us was developing basically the condoms and that had a lot of different sort of pieces of it. Um, Latex is the sap of the rubber tree. So just like you would go tap a tree, a maple tree for maple syrup, we had to source our latex. Um, We actually spent about a month traveling around and visiting different rubber plantations um, and we had you know read about and heard about the sort of horrible conditions that you'll find on most rubber plantations and we luckily found one um, that was fair trade certified that we were able to source our latex from um, so figuring out the first one of the first steps was figuring out the supply chain and as part of that, Um, Finding a manufacturing partner. So we had actually um, hired the former head of R&D from Durex early on to help consult and figure out um, how to create condoms without a byproduct called nitrosamines, which I can get into And so finding that consultant was really critical. I mean, if you're going into an industry and you're not an expert, we were not experts in the condom industry. You really want to focus on finding a person or people who are experts, who know the space, who know the challenges, who can help you figure out how you're going to build your supply chain. Um, So that was was really where we started.
0: So another uh, question that I always ask is the funding part of this. So, you know, you're saying you hired someone from Durex, obviously there was a little bit of funding at the beginning. Um, how did you fund the company from the beginning? And then what fundraising have you done as you've built the company?
1: Yeah. So fundraising, everybody's favorite activity. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) We, so we did an initial round of funding before we launched, um, to fund the R&D, to fund the consultants, to fund some of the staff, packaging, you know, manufacturing, all of that stuff. Um, So before we we launched officially, um, about a year before, we had gone out with our deck and our projections and sort of what it would, the cost associated with getting us through launch. Um, And all of that money came from friends and family, um, a lot of which were, you know, former or current at the time, seventh generation investors, um, since then raised, you know, sort of raised money on an ongoing basis up until, um, late last year when we got a majority investment, um, and ownership stake from an, a larger CPG company called Com C-O-M-B-E. C-O-M-B. Um, which is the makers of actually another company called Vagisil, which people might be familiar with. And so from, from there, you know, we've really sort of shifted away from fundraising as we now have a lot more financial stability going forwards.
0: And what advice do you have for folks, um, especially women in terms of fundraising?
1: So something that, My dad said to me early on, and and it's really true. And it's really important. And I've actually turned down large checks because of this piece of advice is, you know, you can't fire your investors. Um, I mean, you could get somebody to buy them out, but it's not, it's not even like an employee, it's, you're sort of stuck with them. And you need to do your diligence on your investors. And it's sort of Probably an annoying thing to hear because it's so hard to raise money anyways, especially if you're a woman that the last thing you want to be like is, oh, well, I'm going to be picky about it. That sounds ridiculous. But taking money from people who, you know, you don't have a good feeling about or you hear from someone else is a really challenging investor can be so distracting and challenging in terms of just running your business. So... I think that's that's been a really important piece of advice. Um, it definitely was a huge thing in ultimately doing this big deal with this uh, strategic partner, and making sure that we were very, very aligned from a value standpoint. Um, but it's you know it's tough, and I think you have to continue to ask. You have to continue to reach out. I mean, I've had a really great sort of. I don't know, great run or great. I've had really good experience reaching out and connecting with other female founders who are successful, who have either ended up funding us or have introduced me to uh, VCs or other angels. It's you know, it's it's really you got to have you got to have confidence in your idea. You have to have stamina because it's not going to happen overnight. Um, and then you also just need to use your gut in terms of who you ultimately decide to take money from.
0: Love it. Um, so, I was just hoping you could provide us a little bit of context in terms of the traction that you guys have gained since you launched the company. And what do you believe has been kind of the most important element of that growth?
1: We started in July of 2014 just with condoms and just selling to brick and mortar retail um, because that was sort of the business we knew from Seventh Generation. And then Over time, introduced organic lubricant, our post-play wipes. Um, And then in the summer of 2017, uh, three years after launching, we launched our direct-to-consumer business and we added period products. And, you know, I think it's kind of funny to think about now people would be like, well, yeah, of course, obviously, direct-to-consumer is a huge business opportunity. Why didn't you do that to begin with? Um, But the inflection point came from this you know expansion of our business strategy and expansion of our sales channel and expansion of our product line but i really can't you know undercut the amount of help we got from the momentum coming out of the 2016 election as what sort of fueled i would say july 2017 was when our business went from growing steadily to sort of growing exponentially month over month. And that really was both a function of everything I talked about, but I would say almost as importantly, we had spent the first three years going, you know, uphill really slowly. Like I felt like people were, you know, I felt like I was pushing a boulder uphill and not just because it's really hard to start a business and it's really hard to get funding and it's really hard to get distribution but it's really hard and what it's, it's gotten easier, but it's still hard to get women comfortable talking about thinking about sex and sexuality and safe sex. Um, and then as you layer on what that means from the stigma that comes with them getting funding or advertising policies or partnering with other brands, it, I mean, it was like, I had no idea how challenging this was going to be because of the category we were in. Um, I always say in the beginning, I felt like a drug dealer. <laughs> Not <laughs> even go. I was treated like I was encouraging bad behavior. And so you know expanding out of just brick and mortar online, we got to have a direct relationship with our customers, got to educate them on these products. There was an anonymity, you know, thing now where they could buy it in the comfort of their own home or on their phone. Um, we also introduced period products, which, you know, are much less taboo, um, much bigger category. So we we almost had this way into the sex conversation now, both online, through our tampons and pads, um, etc. But it, it really also was, you know spending so much time in the beginning just trying to like hey hey like you know let's talk about sex like look, you know we're not trying to whisper about it but you might be trying to and like now we have to talk to you about safe sex now we have to talk to you about condoms now we have to talk to you about why you should have you know a healthier cleaner condom like there are all these layers that we had to do it wasn't just like hey what shoes do you wear when you go for a run it's like, It it was just such a different, emotional, crazy, you know, multi-layered conversation just to introduce people to the brand, let alone convince them to switch to condoms, which by the way, people spend seven seconds in front of the condom aisle on average. So it wasn't, you know, it was just really, it was a really different challenge. And then when the election happened, all of a sudden women were like, well, fuck this every, you know, my reproductive rights are at stake. My general rights are at stake. We have the president of the country basically saying it's okay to sexually harass women. Everybody's sort of like, I, it was like there was this like, you know, not a glass ceiling, but some other type of like ceiling that we kept trying to break through to get people's attention. And all of a sudden it was gone. And everybody was receptive to what we were talk, trying to talk to them about.
0: And so that
1: combined with, all those other factors really allowed Sustain to take off in a way that I always you know, knew that it would, um, but didn't know when it would.
0: So I'm always curious, what has been one of the best moments so far on your journey?
1: I mean, the one that comes to mind, just because it was such a sort of collision of so many things we'd been trying to do coming to life, was selling lube on Home Shopping Network. <laughs> <laughs> I had spent at that point, you know, almost four years. We've been on the market, I guess four years. Yeah. Almost four years on the market, struggling to just get people comfortable with the category. And then home shopping network, which had never, ever sold an intimate product and never a sexual wellness product, um, you know, invites me on to sell organic lubricant to millions and millions of women. And, it was just pretty amazing because it you know it validated what we were trying to do and it validated our products and it validated um, that there was interest in these categories and that it was time for change but it also just felt like you know such a success just in terms of holy shit like we're on home shopping now. we're talking about lou you know at the time, like Facebook wouldn't even let us use the word vagina in an ad. Um, it it just—it was just kind of, kind of amazing in terms of just like a stake in the ground to change just culture and and sort of interpretations of the category with just our success as a business. Um, but on sort of a emotional level, the moments are frequent and regular because we get, you know, hundreds of letters a week from women about how we change their lives. You know, they didn't feel comfortable having sex. It was painful. They'd never had sex. They, you know, never, they always felt ashamed buying condoms and insisting, you know, whoever they were hooking up with was using them. And now they don't anymore. It's mothers writing to us talking about how, They're just, you know, sort of can't believe that we are helping create a world in which their daughter will grow up feeling comfortable in their body and and being sexual um, in a way that they never had. It's, It's a really amazing experience to be just having such intimate conversations with our customers and hearing how we're really
0: changing their lives. So then on the other hand, uh, could you share with me what's been one of the worst moments so far on this journey?
1: There's been a lot of really tough moments in a lot of different ways. I think for me, um, when we launched Sustain within the first few days of launching or or we were getting ready to launch, um, we got a piece of media that went up. And I have a really dark freckle on my lower lip. And people started commenting on the article saying, what's on her lower lip? She must be, she should be using condoms, not selling them. That must be. And it was really, it's funny because now I actually look at that as like one of the most important moments because I really, you know, as I said in the beginning, I didn't realize that there was such a stigma around sex and condoms. I mean, I grew up in Vermont. (laughs) Everything is just like not as, I guess just a much more liberal community and I had a much more open relationship with my family. So I just didn't realize how personally I attacked I would get for being a young woman, you know, selling condoms. Um, But it was important because up until that point, I was in a little bit of like fairyland of this is so cool. This is going to be so great. This is a huge opportunity. It's important. It's sex. It's fun. It's responsible. It's sustainable. You know, I was kind of in like la la land. Um, And then I was like, oh, oh shit. Like this is going to be hard. Like people are angry with me and we haven't even really launched yet. So I was really upset because, you know, it was it was like, oh my God, there's this huge piece of what I'm doing that I didn't think through thoroughly enough. And that's terrifying.
0: So, so that's kind of a half-baked question. I hope it I hope I get it out. But so I feel like there's there's a lot of areas in society where women get attacked just for trying trying to do the thing and they're a woman. Um, this being one of them for for women who are kind of interested in going into areas that are more traditionally dominated by men or where they might be kind of personally attacked for attempting to do something like you were what advice do you have for them
1: I mean you have to be brave you have to be I mean you have to be brave and you have to be so committed to your mission and to what you're trying to change because otherwise you'll just completely, you know, you'll just fall apart. I think everybody talks about how hard it is to start a business, how there's highs, and highs, and low lows. And that's, by the way, not just like in the beginning, it's forever. <laughs> and there's just new there's a new reason to give up every week, I would say, right? There's a new challenge in the beginning. There's a new uh, there's uncharted territory. And then, if you're taking on an issue where people are going to, on top of that, have really angry, negative reactions to what you're doing, you better be so gung ho, full on committed to your mission that that stuff just motivates you further.
0: I, uh, I'm a coloradan, and we, I'm a mountain climber, and um, there's this experience. I don't know if you've ever had this where you're, as you're climbing the mountain, you see the top the entire time. And then you get to that point where you think the top is, and it's actually not the top of the mountain. You just couldn't, you, you couldn't see the top of the mountain from the beginning. It's called false summiting. It is one of the most demoralizing and terrible experiences you've ever had. Cause you think you're finished with your hike and you're right. like halfway through it. Um, one of my investors actually said to me, um, being an entrepreneur is false summiting forever. <laughs> it's like you just fall summit after fall summit after fall summit, and I was like, "Oh, this sounds sounds great. Sign me up. Let's do this." <laughs> oh. it's, um, so, it's so true. Yes. Um, so speaking of that, uh, I'm curious for you, kind of, what does your daily routine look like? Do you have any practices that really serve your own personal sustainability and well being, and keep you going?
1: I take a bath almost every day.
0: Oh, nice. <laughs> you
1: know, oh God, I, it's like, I, I want to say that I meditate every day and I eat protein in the morning and I work out three times a week. I mean, I try and do all of that stuff, but what it comes, the thing that keeps me sort of sane is, and I didn't really figure this out until probably like, a year and a half or two years ago is that not everything's urgent. Not everything's an emergency. And I think we start out as an entrepreneur. um, Everything feels like, oh my God, if I don't do this, it's not going to work out. And so at a certain point, you just have, I mean, if you can start in the beginning, all the power to you. I certainly couldn't. You have to make a decision, right? I remember for years and my husband and I talk about this all the time. It was, all right, well, this is the year. You know, this is the year we're going to make, it's going to make or break. And then after six years, you kind of got asked yourself, <laughs> is, that, is that real? Is that real anymore? And for us, no, you know, knock on wood, like we, we will be here in 12 months. I, I don't have like a doubt about that anymore. It doesn't feel like this existential threat hanging over and if that's the case, you can't operate in like fight or flight mode. Did I get that right? Fight or flight—is that what people say? Uh, you have to figure out how you're going to be here in a year, and two years, and five years, and ten years, because otherwise you'll just burn out. And so for me, it's you know, yes, I have my rituals, I have my television, I have my bath, I have my you know trying to get away a few times a year, but I also just try and you know. When you get to six or seven o'clock, look at your inbox, look at your to-do list and say, is there really anything else left on here that like, if I don't get this done tonight, the business is going to be chaos tomorrow. Um, And the reality is the answer is usually no. And sometimes the answer is yes. And sometimes you're in a crisis. And sometimes you have to work more than, you know, you should or you want to. But I think figuring out, it's like that 80-20 rule kind of. And going back to that is like so critical to stay sane. Otherwise, it's everything is urgent, everything's overwhelming, and you'll just get so sucked into the minutiae that I just don't think you can be productive and see the big picture.
0: So what you just said might be one of these, but I'm curious from the top lessons that you've learned so far in building the company, what are maybe your top two to three pieces of advice that you give to other business leaders?
1: I have some like newer lessons that have come out of forming this strategic partnership with a larger company, but, and I think this applies to it and everything is reflect, don't react, you know, in that same vein of urgency, you want to get through things fast. You want to respond to people quickly. You want to keep the ball moving at all times. You want to just push, push, push forward, but that can create chaos. And that can also create no time for you to sort of reflect and really shape how you want to respond to someone um, and what the implications of how you respond could be. And so I think even though things may feel urgent and even though you want to move as fast as possible, you have to be mindful of how you're responding um, and always putting your best foot forward. So that's been really important. And helpful for me. Um, The other thing is something we talked about, you know, whether it's with your team or it's with your investor or, you know, it's just this idea of like having empathy. Um, And it kind of for me is related to being reactive. Like I try and think about if somebody's, you know, Angry or frustrated or you know pissed off. Like, where is that coming from? Is it relating to something that I did? Is it relating to a situation that I caused, or is it something external? And like, just being mindful of how to sort of manage people. Um, and I think it is. I feel you know, especially for women. And I think obviously I've talked to so many women about this. It's really hard to be like this balance of like being too nice or being a bitch. And I think what happens at least for me is sometimes you go, you sort of, I'm always, everyone's trying to figure out how do you, what is, what even is the middle? Like, what is it called? (laughs) I don't know. But I started out with very much. I just want people to be happy. I want people to like me. I want people to want to work for me. Um, I don't want to be mean. I don't want to be a bitch. I don't want to be reactive. Like I was so trying to be so mindful. And if you, you create this situation and then you're like, well, I'm also the boss and I'm responsible for the business and I'm responsible for us getting our numbers and I'm responsible for all of these people now. And so it's not, you know, it's different to be kind than be nice. It's different to be, you know, just make people feel good and be responsible um, and that's just this constant struggle and I don't have the answer to it other than, you know, try and find some balance between being a bitch, which I don't say that you should be a bitch, but I think being firm and being clear and being sort of holding people accountable and this idea of, you know, I need everybody to be happy and I need everybody to feel good and I need everybody to like me. I mean, you want all of that. Um but at the end of the day, you know,
0: you're responsible
1: for the business.
0: All right. Our last question here. Um, what is giving you hope right now?
1: Young women. Gen, is it Gen? I think it's Gen Z. I can't even explain this. Sh- there's this shift. And obviously there's the internet and there's all this other stuff going on and, and screen time and blah, 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 blah. But when I look at myself and my generation and my peers and how we think about, talk about sex and sexual health and reproductive health and all this stuff. And then I look at my sister, who's, you know, seven years younger than me and her peers. It's so amazing to me. There's this openness and this engagement in these conversations that just I didn't, I didn't experience growing up. Um, And obviously there's some downsides of that with, like, the internet and porn and proliferation of certain types of porn and all this type of stuff, but I'm really hopeful. Like, there's just this engagement and enthusiasm and almost a sense of, like, activism and urgency among younger women right now that just really inspires me.
0: A huge thanks this week to Mika Hollander and the whole team over at Sustain. The World Changing Women podcast is brought to you by Conscious Company Media and is produced by StoryPop Media. If you like what you're hearing, we'd be so grateful if you tell a friend about the show. And be sure to subscribe to get the latest episode. Thanks so much for listening. A StoryPop Media production.